Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to another episode of Reckless to Talk, our TTRPG interview show where we sit down with some of our favorite writers, players, GMs, and streamers to get to know a little bit more about what makes them who they are. I am, as always, your host, GM Nathan, and today I'm really excited to present to you all a slight reckless talk swerve because, uh, well, this week's guest is not a writer, player, GM, or streamer, at least in the public content-creating way. I got to sit down with Hillary Davis, a licensed clinical professional counselor and licensed marriage and family therapist at the Touchstone Therapy Center here in Illinois. During the pandemic, her therapy center added a new offering for some of their adolescent patients, the Resourceful Realms, a therapeutic role-playing game experience to practice emotional regulation, frustration tolerance, problem-solving, perspective-taking, and empathy. We got introduced to Hillary by way of Reckless Attack cast member Steve, who knows her in the real world, and I'm super thankful now that we got her on the show. We, capital C content creators, often talk about how gaming can be therapeutic, but not therapy, and I think that we get into some of those actual distinctions here. While what she and her other facilitators do in their sessions are very different than what you should be doing at a table with friends, there is still, I think, a wealth of great perspective on safety, comfort, finding the courage to do the voice, and finding community all offered through the lens of someone who is not a capital C content creator. Really a special episode, I think. But before we hop in, I wanted to flag a couple of things. If, while you are listening, you hear a computer notification, don't panic. This interview uh, took place in an office setting, so there are some chimes and bings and whatnot. Unfortunately, that was just the cost of talking to a busy therapist. Also, in the back half of the episode, Hillary's audio quality dips just a little bit. It didn't show up while we were recording, and it is well cleaned up by our editing wizards. Thanks, Jay. But it is there, so apologies. Final note, Steve and I recorded a companion piece to this episode covering his experience running games for kids. This originally started as a short Patreon interview featuring both Steve and Hillary, but I realized it had quickly grown out of that during my prep and pivoted. Please go check it out. Anyway, after all that, as always, please be sure to check the show description to find links to my chat with Steve and more information and resources from Hillary about therapeutic tabletop games and more. That is it for me. Hope you enjoy the episode, and I'll see you next time. Hello, Hillary. Hello, Nathan. How are you? I am superb. How are you today? <laughs> I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. Excellent. Well, my day was fine previously, but as this has approached, it has taken that turn upwards into that superb territory. Such is my enthusiasm and excitement for um. talking to you here <laughs> on this, this lovely day. You say that now. Well, that's fair, but I'm excited right in the moment. You know, I'm trying to be trying to be centered, trying to be present in the present moment is that I'm very excited to be talking to you. <laughs> so thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's It's been something that we've, uh, this is a conversation that we've been wanting to do for a while, uh, kind of ever since Steve intro- sort of introduced us <laughs> to the concept of Hillary and all the things that you do. Uh, and so very, very happy to finally be sitting down to do it. Uh, and for those who are not aware, who might be listening, who are you? <laughs> what do you do? What are your pronouns? Uh, what What are the, the base introductions for you as human? Sure. So I'm Hillary Davis. Uh, My pronouns are she, hers. I own a clinic in Vernon Hills. We see everyone from therapy from birth all the way up on to adults. And we do all sorts of therapy here at this clinic. We do behavior therapy. We do speech therapy. We do occupational therapy. We do physical therapy. Basically, if therapy is in the name, we probably do some sort of version of it. We run support groups. We run skills groups. And that's actually how I got into tabletop role-playing groups as well. 
I am a licensed marriage and family therapist myself and licensed clinical practitioner counselor. And I've been a counselor for about 22 years at this point. Wow. Amazing. That was, that was uh, for those who may not have caught it, there's the intersection of, of the, the nominal purpose of our podcast, tabletop role-playing games, and mental health care and all that good stuff uh, in, in your bio, which we will be talking about today, of course, at length. But Hillary, we can't, we can't just jump in. We can't <laughs> jump into the cool things that you're doing and the yeah. impactful, life-changing gaming that you're doing. No, we have, to, we, have to, we have to talk about you. We have to talk about the, the human soul and, and the history, the deep lore of Hillary uh, before, we, before we get into all of that. So, uh, so usually I ask, hey, how did you get introduced to tabletop role-playing games? And we will get to that. But because we're also talking about mental health care and all that kind of stuff, I also just kind of wanted to really start with how did you get interested in that field and kind of what has drawn you there and obviously kept you there uh, for the last 22 years of your career? Wow, you don't ask the easy questions, do you, to start out with? (laughs) (laughs) We can can back in another way or, you know, or, you know, and then just edit it later too, you know? No, I'm just teasing. So um, as a counselor, I would say for me, this was always the path that I was on. I was one of those kids that in high school was the peer counselor. I was the person who was doing the suicide hotline, like all the things that you could do and not be a counselor. That's what I'd been doing since high school. So naturally, when I got to undergrad, I went and got a psychology degree for which everyone told me you will not be able to find anything to do with that whatsoever. Mm -hmm. While I was at the University of Illinois, I also joined a program where we did peer counseling um, and also mediation. And that was really interesting to me because I'd been doing some research with some of the research groups on campus. While I really liked doing research, I really enjoyed the one-on-one that you get from working with people and seeing what would happen when things would go well. And so then... In the counseling world, you can't stop with a bachelor's degree. You have to get, you know, a higher level of care. I ended up going into marriage and family therapy because I thought that I wanted to work with couples and be a couples counselor. So I ended up in a graduate program for marriage and family therapy. And then I graduated from that and seeing couples made me want to vomit. So <laughs> Not for me, actually. Yeah. Not actually, which, by the way, is not an uncommon experience for a lot of therapists to go out of graduate school and go, I'm going to do this. I'm going to work with kids. I'm going to work with couples because they ask you to kind of focus on certain things. Sure. Ironically, 22 years later, I'm a really good couples counselor now and I enjoy (laughs) working with couples. But it's also taught me that depending on where you're at in your life, that makes a difference in terms of the populations that you work with. And when you're starting out life and you have new and happy relationships, seeing other people's relationships maybe not doing so well is not always a good match. (laughs) So that's how I started my counseling journey. And I did various things, non-for-profits, working for insurance companies as a counselor and doing different things along those lines. Eventually, I started, as most counselors do, moving into private practice. And I've been in private practice now about 17 or 18 years in some way, shape, or form. Now we have the clinic. We have a whole counseling team. They do all sorts of really fun and exciting stuff. That's my career in a nutshell. For you, and and this does apply, I think, to tabletop Mm role-playing games, too, because tabletop role-playing games are a manner of connection, right? Either to yourself, to others, to, to all of the above. What part about the kind of helping of other people and the connecting with other people, uh, which you clearly have have had a passion for for your whole life, what part of that is kind of so interesting and has such a big pull uh, and, and hook for you? Like, why, why is that such so rewarding? There's two things that for me kind of guide where I'm at in terms of both my career and my personal life. I love learning. And I love new experiences. And when you're working with people, every day is a new experience. Every day is a a chance or an opportunity to learn something new. And if it's not something that you're familiar with, especially in the counseling field, there are avenues to explore to increase that knowledge base. In terms of connection and empathy, I think when you 
are an empathetic in- individual, and I would like to think that I'm an, in- <laughs> an empathetic individual, there is that feedback that you get yourself that when you are working with someone and they're able to make the kind of progress to the goals that, or the changes that they want to make in their life, and they're successful at that, that feels very rewarding. And it feels good to know that you are helping send people out into the world and, and feeling good about where they're at as well. I always tell my clients, my goal is not to keep you in therapy. Mm-hmm. My goal is to help you get the tools that you need so you can go out and help yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. So where, where does tabletop role play games, like where, where does that either, either separately or, you know, kind of get folded into the life that you lead now, obviously, but um, how did you kind of first get introduced to, to tabletop role playing games or, you know, if it makes more sense, how did you kind of get introduced to the general ephemeral nerdy things <laughs> in life? Where did that all begin for you? First, I will say, I think I've always been a little bit nerdy in general. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge sci-fi fantasy person, comic book person growing up, tons of comic books. However, I will admit that D&D was not my thing growing up. And perhaps I maybe even looked at other people who were doing that and said, oh, those people. Mm-hmm. But I have since learned a lot more about that. Someone that you know, Steve, really well. Hi, Steve. <laughs> Listening later. Hello. <laughs> there you go. Um, has been my husband's best friend for a really, really long time. And that's how I met Steve. I don't even know how long they've known each other, more or less. From knowing Steve, I knew about D&D. I had never really, aside from seeing stuff, hearing about it through peers and whatnot, had done anything myself. But I knew that Steve was really into it. And during COVID, we have two children. And obviously, like every parent out there, we were trying to make sure that they had things to do. So first, we had Steve trying to work with my children to understand what D&D was. And I remember coming home because I wasn't there that day. And I asked my daughter, my youngest daughter, how it went. She was about eight at the time. And she's like, I don't really understand It's like a game, but it's in your head, but there's nothing. And also I spent 45 minutes and all I came up with was a character. We didn't even do anything. And I was like, okay. And that kind of was a pause on that for a little bit. But then as COVID went on, my daughter got very involved in a D&D group that Steve was the DM for. And it was a group of her friends, and it was a way for them to stay connected during COVID and have that social time. And so we were promoting that a lot in our house. As a therapist, you know, and a mother, I tend to listen in to things, you know. <laughs> there was this one point in the game where one of her friends who has ADHD got this spell. If he used the spell, and I think it was like a thunderclap or something of that nature, it was going to kill some everything within a hundred mile radius. <laughs> Unfortunately, the rest of his teammates were in that hundred mile radius. Right, yeah. <laughs> but he had a lot of impulse issues. And so he really wanted to use that spell. His friends were yelling at him. They were saying, don't do it. <laughs> Steve had jumped in and was like, you know, you if you use this, if I'm recalling this correctly, you're going to kill everyone, including your teammates. And yet that impulsivity couldn't be reined in enough to not use the spell. And of course, (laughs) everyone died. Everyone was angry. And about the time I heard them all shouting at each other, the therapist mom came in (laughs) and was like, okay, let's take a step back and talk about this. And we're going to process it. And what could we do differently? And by the time we were done, they all felt better, were able to re-engage in the game. I walked out of there going, this is fabulous because this was an opportunity for them to experience learning some social emotional skills and how to self-regulate, how to work on conflict resolution. And if this stuff had happened in middle school in real life, there could be some major drama, friendships ending. (laughs) I don't want to hang out with this person anymore. That is where I started stepping into therapeutic tabletop role-playing games, because even though I personally hadn't really played ever before that, I saw the benefit of how this could work with kids in a safe environment where they could try things out, make mistakes, 
And by the end of that particular session, be able to walk out of there feeling pretty good about themselves. So after that, I talked with Steve and he had mentioned that there were people that were doing this therapeutically. Yeah. That led me on a journey to kind of learn more, learn how to play myself, and now the games that we run at the clinic as well. Amazing. And I think we will be, I think we'll be talking, we'll be getting the, the, the salient, most salient, you know, kind of gamer <laughs> details from Steve in a separate interview that I think is going to be on our, on our Patreon. Uh, stay tuned to anyone who is listening to this in the future. But as you were, you know, kind of very tangentially aware of D&D and tabletop role-playing games, both kind right. of culturally and, and getting that exposure through friends and through your family. As you were like delving in and really understanding like, ah, here's what it is and here's what it looks like and here's what it can look like in kind of the lead up to getting ready to learning more about it. Sure. Did you, were you also playing? Were you kind of getting introduced to tabletop role-playing games and what the experience was sitting there rolling dice or drawing cards or using fun character voices or, or what have you? So until I started kind of going down this path, I had not played at all. I had watched some people play. <laughs> I had observed some things, but I hadn't done anything myself. And I will say that when I first started getting into this and I, I went to a training program, part of that is you'd have to play. Mm -hmm. It was really difficult for me as a therapist to get into that space of yeah. like, using voices mm -hmm. and using my imagination. Although, again, for me, it was also kind of really exciting because it's getting outside your comfort zone, getting yeah. outside your box. And as a therapist, that's what we're always working on people doing. So everywhere I looked, once I started looking for it, I could see connections to mental health and therapeutic value. So it was really fun and a little overloading at first because there was just so much information to learn. And also like there were synapses firing whenever I would see something and go, yeah. oh, when people create their characters, you know, they might be creating them as a reflection of themselves or they're picking places like and things that they want to do or who they want to be. And yeah. the therapist part of me was just like mm -hmm. firing all the time. Yeah. <laughs> when I say I hadn't done anything, I hadn't done anything until that little incident that I observed with my daughter's friends had happened. So you, you mentioned kind of getting trained and I, I mm -hmm. kind of in preparation learned a little bit about what that entailed, what you did it through, that kind of stuff, but both for, for me, but also for, for folks listening, what did that look like? You know, kind of finding who trains, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, therapeutic, uh, you know, game masters and, and whatever, but also getting involved, learning it, what, you know, kind of what went into that process for you um, and for anyone else who was, who was doing it. When I say I was a newbie, I was really a newbie. So I was like hitting Steve up for information a lot in the beginning, asking anyone I knew that who played. I'm like, what does that mean to roll for initiative? Like, what what is, I don't uh -huh. understand. Like, so I basically started out by both reading like some of the basic manuals. And at the same time, I started level one training with a, a non-for-profit that's out of the state of Washington and they're called Game to Grow. And they're a fabulous organization. And I can't say enough about the training and the supervision that I had got with them. And that was super helpful because I had all the therapeutic skills to make those connections. Yeah. But like I said, I had no idea what I was doing. And then, you know, again, because I'm an avid, an avid consumer, mm -hmm. I started buying all the things. I'm like looking over here right now at a stack <laughs> of like all of the materials. Like I bought different, you know, D&D &D modules. You know, I got kids on bikes. We have decks of wonder. And I just started immersing myself into all of the stuff, went a little crazy on Kickstarter. <laughs> we all have, no judgment. <laughs> and really just tried to learn as much as I could about the basics, as well as how I could start to connect that to what we were doing with the kids that we were working with. Game to Grow has three different levels of training, or at least they did when I was going through training with them. Each training session got progressively more in-depth. So if the first series was learning more about what a therapeutic tabletop role-playing game could look like, we started learning about how can you create your own homebrew games that might be more specific to whatever issues right. people might be having. 
there, there were some things that I felt very uncomfortable with where we had to work on sure. voices or how, sure. <laughs> like yep. what you can do with your body to engage people a little bit more. And also how to present certain challenges so that you can bring out some of the behaviors that you're hoping to work with from the participants. So for example, if it was emotional regulation, we might pose a challenge that is more likely to have people losing their tempers. So then we have a chance to kind of bait the skill that we're looking for. Yeah. Hmm. That's amazing. Well, I guess before I ask about you know, kind of setting up an environment where where kids are encouraged to have that discomfort, to make mistakes and to get past them. How did you get past your own discomfort and your own kind of worry of making mistakes? Is because because like you said, like learning tabletop role playing games, especially as an adult, is a strange thing, especially <laughs> if you're not steeped in in cultural relevance. You know, you have no idea what it can look like other than what you heard vaguely secondhand from family members and friends. So what was it like kind of having to sit in a professional setting and learn how to do a fun dwarf accent, you know, and, and, <laughs> and, and learn about like creating your own fantasy worlds and all that kind of stuff. Just, just kind of the overarching experience for you when you were uncomfortable and when you were being like, Oh God, wait, I have to do what? To, to make this therapeutic, I, should, I have to learn these skills. What was hard for you and how did you get past it? I would say, like I said, I was nerdy in my own way, not yeah. in the D&D way. So stories were something that I always related to. And also stories are a huge part of therapy. You know, it's how we view ourselves, sure. the stories that we tell ourselves. The piece about creating adventures or using modules and adapting it for therapeutic tabletop role-playing games or even doing homebrew games, that stuff I am totally comfortable with. Even now, I will take that anytime over <laughs> having to do voices. As my daughters <laughs> say, my voices all sound the same. Yeah, you don't have to do, you can just talk a little slower, talk a little higher, a little lower, That's and right. that, that gets you through most <laughs> of the stuff. I, as a, as a, as a semi, semi-professional dungeon master i give you permission to just say things slightly differently and that's <laughs> thank it. you i appreciate that and that has been super helpful is to watch youtube videos on how people did that oh sure so when it came to the story pieces like that i have always felt very comfortable with but to your earlier question when it came to things like voices or having to change your body language to play an npc or mm-hmm. having to try and continue like on a module because I'm also a slight type type A personality. So I'd be like, we've got to get to the challenge. We've got to get to the puzzle. Like, you know, also, also a DM DMing tale as old as time of like, all right, guys, we've been at this door for 45 minutes. You haven't even checked if it's locked. Let's keep moving. Yep. Totally. That understand. is exactly right. So I think those things were probably the most challenging for me. As I approach many things, part of it was just information consumption. Where mm-hmm. can I find information? Whose brains can I pick? In the beginning, and even sometimes now too, I equate it to feeling like you're on a roller coaster, which is mm-hmm. when I'm pushing myself out of my comfort zone, it's a huge adrenaline rush. And then after like an hour and a half of gameplay, I'm like, oh my gosh, I feel like I just ran like 800 miles. <laughs> uh-huh. But I try and put myself out there because for me, I understand that it's my own sense of what I am uncomfortable with and what mm-hmm. I'm uncomfortable with is not something that whoever is in a game with me is maybe noticing or even cares about. So, you know, for me, even though it felt uncomfortable, my feeling was as long as we were getting positive feedback, I was seeing some of that growth that we were looking for. I could continue to put myself out there and go on that adrenaline ride. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It is a, a bit of a rush when you don't know what you're doing. And my favorites were in the beginning when I didn't know the rules quite as well and I was just kind of jumping in with two feet is that you'd always get like a kid who'd been playing for years and they'd be like, that's not how that goes. (laughs) And you'd be like, well, for the purpose of today, this is how, well, that's not the way it works. And then you'd have to like go, okay. And I understand that, but this is a little different. And, and then through that, you'd kind of learn how to give disclaimers in the beginning. This is a therapeutic tabletop role-playing game. We're not necessarily playing Dungeons and Dragons. The rules might be bent a little bit. We may change or alter them for our needs. 
But that was also a challenge in the beginning is kind of going, okay, I'm getting schooled by a nine-year-old. Um. <laughs> Hillary, in case it's also useful, that happens with adults as well and <laughs> is a very a universal experience of like, well, actually, that's not quite how it works. It's like, well, yeah. it does in this one. So don't worry about it. Unless you want to run nine-year-olds. <laughs> uh, <laughs> very safe therapeutic approach, I'm sure. What went into kind of the decision to kind of offer this program, but more kind of importantly, like how did you get buy-in from, you know, any relevant stakeholders, but also of parents, of kids, of, you know, kind of how did you spread awareness and explain it to people and get people to, to participate? You know, I think sometimes people hear like Dungeons and Dragons, and I and I understand now you're not really even supposed to say that all that much if you're not <laughs> equating, <laughs> you know, ownership a someplace specific else. Game, yeah. What we found is that the more information that we could give people or real life examples, hmm. kind of like the story that I told you in terms of how I got into that, even if you don't know anything about tabletop role-playing games, most people can see that connection once you explain it to them. And so we really would try and come up with the stories that would relate to the parents to kind of say, hey, you know, it may feel un unconventional, but this is another way to address the same types of things that you're looking for in a group for your child in a way that they might really want to engage in. In telling those stories for a lot of parents that connected and also that buy-in is, you know, do you want your kids to feel like they're being dragged to a clinic for a social skills thing? And some are totally like, I'm not <laughs> knocking that. We run regular social skills yeah. groups as well. Um, but there are some kids that do better when they're not necessarily being spoon fed, but when Definitely. they're getting something without necessarily understanding at first that they're getting something of value. At first, I think it was a little bit difficult, although I do have to say in the last couple of years, the exposure to tabletop role playing games, at least in the community that we live in, yeah. has expanded exponentially. And so it is not as difficult to kind of go through that with parents now than I would say when we first started like three or four years ago and people were like, what? What does that mean? Yeah. Really for us, the, the telling of the story is showing someone how it works. One of the things that we do is we'll offer, um, we call them Taste of Resourceful Realms, mm. which is like a one shot. And we have done them where we will have it for parents and their kids. Or if it's like near Father's Day, like, you know, in June or Mother's Day in May, it might be, you know, a Moms and Mages one shot. Part of that was designed to get people to kind of try it out. So then if you also have people that are questioning, to get them to kind of try it and see the benefit and where those applications could be therapeutically. That kind of also makes me want to make sure that I kind of have the the structure kind of put forward. So what, 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 A, what games do you run? Uh, is it D&D? &D? Is it kind of a, is it a, a, a therapeutic, you know, if you squint, it's D&D? &D. Uh, or is it something else entirely? And, and kind of what ages do you guys usually work the most with um, or target kind of as, as part of this program? We work with anywhere up from eight-year-olds to 18-year-olds. We've been playing around with the idea of doing groups for adults because there are people out there right now that are doing them with people who have PTSD or other disorders where it's a safer space to do something in a fantasy world than it is in reality. We haven't done that yet, but because we're working mostly with kids and adolescents, not all of our groups are structured the same way. So for example, if we're doing a group with younger kids, we might do more of a homebrew sort of game where we let them actually kind of create the elements of the game. If we're doing it virtually, we might throw up a whiteboard on Zoom and let them collaborate to kind of think about what is this fantasy yeah. world going to look like? And then what I will do, or whichever facilitator is involved, is take all of those elements and then design a game around what they've created so that they have buy-in and value in the things that they're seeing. And then we'll create challenges related to what we've seen on the whiteboard. If they're older kids, we might go a little bit more structured. In general, we were kind of doing 
D&D-ish games where uh-huh. maybe we would <laughs> yeah, like sure. take a module and we would alter it a little bit or take something like Kids on Bikes and, you know, kind of make it work for what we were doing. Since it came out, Game to Grow, which we had done our training through, mm-hmm. also came up with their own game, Critical Core. Yes. And now what we have been using is we've been using Critical Core for our entry into resourceful realms. So if it's a new group, a new group of kids kind of coming together, we'll use that to kind of work through that initial module. And then once they've kind of formed a group, they're feeling comfortable, they've gotten through their campaign, then we'll go into designing, you know, another game, or sometimes we'll take it in a different direction, depending on the kids that make up the game. Maybe we have a series where they each get to take a turn being, you know, the game master, Mm -hmm. so that they can kind of work on learning some other skills as well. So it varies. And we try and adapt it to the types of kids that are signed up for that particular group. Got it. So, so it's, it's, it's more about, hey, who's, who's interested and who jumps in? And then you kind of take it from there and, and craft it accordingly, as opposed to like, Correct. all right, these four people, we're all bringing them in to work on one specific thing or something like that. Got it. That, that yeah. makes sense. Taking that high level umbrella uh, questioning. Uh, a, Resourceful Realms, right, is the name of the, of the program, Correct. Correct. What kind of fantasy is it? I, 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 I want to know, like, is it, is it just kind of your, like, it is fantasy, <laughs> you know, kind of like <laughs> it is your misc Tolkien baseline D&D fantasy? Have you guys, you know, kind of like, is there a standard fantasy that it kind of is now? Or is it just so varied group to group that everyone just kind of makes their own, you know, kind of their own version under the name Resourceful Realms? It's interesting because that varies. Sure. Kids like to kill goblins. Yes, so do adults. There's normally some variation on the classic fantasy world where you've got sorcerers and dragonborn and elves and all of that kind of stuff, high fantasy-esque mm-hmm. type things, a little bit more Dungeons and Dragons-esque. But in order to adapt and kind of widen our audience, we will try and adapt to that as well. So if we've got a bunch of kids that we think could benefit from a tabletop role-playing game, but they're like, D&D, no, or (laughs) I don't want to do that, then we might work on something where everyone's cats. And we have a (laughs) fantasy world where everyone's cats. We did one once and they were all sorts of animals because with the younger kids, they like animals. Absolutely. Those don't happen quite as often. I would say it's a little bit more of the high fantasy. And then again, when we get kids that really get into it, then we'll try and bring in some other modules that might not be like if we know that there's certain issues that they're working on, we might try and bring in something that might hit those issues. But I would say 70% of the time where, where our starting point is, is somewhere in the high fantasy realm. In kind of the intro, you said, hey, my goal as a therapist is not to keep you in therapy. It is to give you the tools that you need to kind of navigate the world accordingly after therapy. Mm-hmm. Is there a kind of similar North Star or guiding light for this particular program? Or when you sit down to have a, a, a session or a short campaign, however many sessions that is, that you're like, all right, to know that we have done our job, or at least we have you know, kind of prepared to try and set ourselves up to do the, the, our jobs in this instance. Um, is there something that you get, you kind of hold with you as you're designing things, as you're navigating games, as you're navigating these relationships, as you're navigating these conflicts? No. <laughs> <laughs> legitimate. That's very legitimate. No. So I would say it's actually the opposite of yeah. where I'm at, because if we think about it, you know, if we're looking at their therapeutic tabletop role-playing games, a lot of kids that come together in, at least when we're talking about kids in adolescence, they may not have that social network that they get within mm. playing the games together with the rest of their teammates. Mm-hmm. And so actually what we found, like when we initially started the program, there were set campaigns. It was supposed to be a campaign. It would be done. You know, we did have those North Star kind of goals. Yeah. And what we found is that a lot of the children and adolescents were reluctant to give up the game playing piece. Mm -hmm. Sure. 
that led us to get into more of those creative aspects where that might be where we switch to what does it look like to be a game master then? What kind of skills do you need for that? It might be changing the themes of the game as they grow a little bit older. But as long as they want to keep meeting and they're finding value, we've kept some of those groups going for a year, more than a year. Wow. That's amazing. They're finding value from it. So I would say as long as there's value and there's no stagnation, we've kept going with some of those. And then depending on, you know, people come and go, you know, if we can roll someone in, great. And then we'll start like a new section if that's what ends up happening. But really the feedback we've gotten from the kids and adolescents who have gotten involved is that they're the ones that want to keep going. Mm-hmm. We have had some kids who then have gone off and created their own games. <laughs> awesome. Which is great and that's fabulous. But generally speaking, it's kind of the opposite, where as long as they're feeling like they're getting something out of it, we'll just continue to work with them on that. Yeah, that's amazing. That's very exciting. So, other than, you know, kind of setting expectations for, well, this is D&D adjacent or things might be a little different here or there or, you know, all the basic structural things around uh, getting people to come in and play D&D. How do you go about making it an emotionally vulnerable place for for kids to come in? Because, I mean, that's something everyone, I think anyone playing tabletop role playing games is interested in and it's necessary to make it a safe fun, good time, especially when you're exploring challenging topics and specifically challenging topics. So how do you guys go in and kind of set that expectations and make it a safe place to make mistakes, to be challenged, to explore things and to maybe have conflict between, you know, different players or, or, you know, kind of different people involved? We've done a lot of training with Game to Grow. And anyone that we bring in as a facilitator, we make go through the, we don't make, we, we asked them politely if they would like <laughs> to receive training through game to grow And one of the things that we learned from the training is we have something called Session Zero. And Session Zero is where we establish all of the safety protocols. Mm-hmm. We will do a no and a please list. We will talk about group rules that we have for the group. And then we ask the group to think about whether or not they have rules that they themselves would like to include. We take the time to kind of find out a little bit about each member that's going to be participating and and what they feel comfortable with. And then based on that session zero, we come back with what we will reiterate at the beginning of each session to kind of remind everyone these are Mm. the expectations for the group. And then we have this mode that we kind of learned from game. I mean, they do a lot of different things, but the one that I personally like to use is the idea of like a zipper and pulling down a zipper and then peering out. For us, that is the boundary that we use to separate, you know, the actual game from we need to take a step back right now Mm -hmm. and maybe have a short little discussion. So we're going to step out of the game, we're going to peer out, and we're going to have a little talk about boundaries, or we're going to talk about, you know, what just happened there for a second. And we might do a little bit more of a hempy emphasis on some therapeutic type of strategy for whatever might be going on. But generally speaking, we use that first session to establish all of those safety protocols, go over confidentiality. One of the biggest challenges I think for us that we find is is that parents of the kids that are participating want us to share information on the other kids in the group so that they might be able to connect outside of group. But we take the therapeutic stance that we use for all therapy groups, which is If you find a way to share that information together on your own, that's great. But coming from the clinic's perspective, that is a HIPAA violation and we cannot do that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. I asked this because, again, I think it's it's both interesting and valuable for, for anyone. Something happens. You know, there is a there is a conflict there. A boundary is pushed. A a kind of safety rule is broken or just things get heated or, or you mm-hmm. know, that you need to take that kind of, of step back, not mm-hmm. just to pause, but also to process and talk through and kind of start applying those therapeutic growth moments and growth opportunities for the people you're playing with. What does that kind of entail? Is there kind of a, are there good rules of thumb, I guess, or are there kind of uh, just bits of wisdom or just bits of good practice that you keep in mind generally, but also that might apply to anyone who's just looking to say, hey, hold on, 
I am feeling something or I'm noticing something or whatever, we should talk about it. You know, what does that mm-hmm. look like and, and how, what does it feel like uh, for, for you and for the people at the table? I think for me, it feels completely comfortable because that's mm-hmm. in my wheelhouse. <laughs> sure. I will say that what I've noticed is every facilitator is a little bit different in terms of what their go-tos are. I personally am fond of an NPC coming in that, you know, might have information, might have something that is going to cause everyone to stop and think for a second. And I think that there's different levels. So if we're talking about conflict or we're talking about some players want to go and hunt for the treasure and some want to get involved in combat. Mm -hmm. I know for me, because I know the players that I'm working with, what I'm trying to get out of that session, what the goals are. So sometimes I might let them go a little bit because I want it to get heated or I want it to get a little bit more conflictual because, you know, again, we're trying to bring out the where does the therapeutic aspect come in? And that's where I might introduce an NPC that might have some more information or might ask them some questions or might actually cause a consequence to happen because they were not like doing what they needed to do to work together and collaborate. If it seems like it's escalating beyond that, and I'm like, oh, okay, here we go, guys. We really need to step out of the game Mm -hmm. for a second. Like I said before, I'll use that kind of zipper metaphor to say, okay, we really need to take a step back. There was a word that was used, a name that was called. This is not okay. And we need to step back and go, how does everyone feel about that? And we might go around the group, ask for everyone's experiences. You know, what could we do differently before we go back into the game? So it really depends on the situation. But I'll be honest with you, some of the things I really want to happen or to let sure. go for a little bit, because that's exactly, that's the difference, I think, between a, a regular tabletop role-playing yes. game and a therapeutic one is we don't want to lose sight of the fact that there are skills to be learned. So whether it's emotional regulation, whether it is collaborating, whether it is using logic skills, I know in the beginning of that session kind of what my goals for the session are. Now, like any therapy session, what I go in with and what actually happens could be two totally different yep, sure. things. Yep. But we always wrap up the session at the end where we'll start out with a spotlight where someone has to come up with something positive that they saw someone oh, yeah. else mm-hmm. do. And then we'll also work on processing like what may have happened during that game. We'll give it like five or 10 minutes to kind of go, what could we do? What could we do differently? And really kind of hone in on what is the takeaway for today? Yeah, I love that. I want to keep that line between this is therapeutic tabletop role-playing games and not necessarily universally useful for all tabletop role-playing games. <laughs> like if people at your table are upset, maybe you should pause around that because your table is not you know, therapeutic necessarily in nature. But something I'm very curious about is presumably all these players are going in. Obviously, they're going to a clinic. They're, you know, kind of playing with a therapist (laughs) or a facilitator who works at this clinic. And they know to a degree, I I, I believe it sounds like, hey, this is a therapeutic game of tabletop role-playing games, basically. Do you encounter resistance when people are met with kind of a triggering thing where it's like, I, you know, I'm just imagining my brain of like, I know that they want me in here to work on this thing on my conflict resolution or my anger or something. And I don't want to do it. And because I see what's happening, you know, like, is, is there kind of uh, curtains and, and smoke and mirrors you have to employ or are a lot of kids and players kind of, they get it. And this is just the place to do that. Um, what's the, what's the experience been? I would imagine, and I can't speak for all facilitators out there, that there are probably those players who might have that piece. And I, I know that in my regular therapy, there have been plenty of times an adolescent has challenged me <laughs> and goes, you know, I know where you're trying to go with this. Yeah. Honestly, one of the reasons why I really like therapeutic tabletop role-playing games is because for me, I really haven't had that happen because hmm. they're getting so invested in the story and whatever's going on that they're really kind of glossing over some of that. Mm -hmm. Now that said, 
they know, like if we're working on collaboration, you know, I don't say in the beginning, we're working on collaboration today. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, after a while, you're meeting with a group and you're talking about, you know, collaboration, they start to notice. And when we get to those spotlights or when we get to those moments where maybe they're not collaborating, that's when you know that those skills are starting to show up because they will take those things that have been said before. And it's not overt, but you'll see that start to happen or you'll start to see in the spotlight, like, I really liked that you threw me that rope before while we were trying to figure out how to cross that chasm. Yeah. I haven't noticed the overt pieces. And again, I can't speak for everybody, but it seems like if you've got a good story and you've got a good game master, they're so engaged that they're not thinking about, oh, I know where you're going with this one. Yeah, sure. We we talked about it a little bit already, or I, I mentioned it rather, kind of that line between regular tabletop role-playing games, quote-unquote, and the tabletop role-playing games that you're doing in terms of goals, in terms of structure, in terms of boundary pushing and that kind of thing. And something that gets talked a lot about uh, online, I guess, as someone who, who is a chronically online tabletop role-playing game person, as opposed to you, who is hopefully a more normal, distant uh, tabletop role-playing game person. A lot of people say, you know, tabletop role-playing games or D&D is therapy, you know, kind of the, the classic like, ah, this is my replacement for therapy. Mm -hmm. Or or kind of the pushback saying, hey, it can be therapeutic, but is not therapy. And it kind of being two separate things. So does that kind of spark any anything for you or any insights in terms of, hey, what is therapeutic versus what is, you know, therapy? Or what is, and, and is your game therapeutic versus therapy? And what's the difference for you, you know, and, and, and what does, what does that mean? Or at least what reactions, I guess, does that, does that spark from you? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I'm going to be honest, I haven't really ever thought of it in that way mm -hmm. before, but I think the first thing that comes to mind for me is when I think of therapy, that is something that is intentional. Mm -hmm. It is something mm -hmm. where there is a plan. Obviously the plans sometimes go by the wayside. You're, <laughs> you're dealing with training, you're using skills, you're teaching skills, you're helping someone figure out, you know, where they need to be to meet their goals. There's a lot of intentionality behind that. Therapeutic is there are things that we do, and sometimes there are even things that we do unconsciously that are mm. therapeutic. I am trained in EMDR, which is a way of using bilateral stimulation to help process trauma. If you imagine a line kind of bisecting your body. Mm -hmm. The idea is to cross that line from left to right. And that actually helps you process information, moving mm -hmm. it from your short term to your long term memory. One of the things that I see people doing sometimes as I'm observing is they're tapping their feet. They're doing things where they're going left, right, left, right, while they're telling me a story about what's going on in their life without even realizing that they're doing it. We're taking the things that I might be trained as a therapist that I might intentionally work on with someone and something therapeutic is something that you might be doing maybe because you learned it or maybe you're not even aware that you're doing it. So my guess would be, and, and part of the reason why I've gotten involved with tabletop role-playing games, is that there are things that are probably going on in all games that are therapeutic. There's a lot of research that goes into therapeutic tabletop role-playing games that, that have been kind of happening a little bit more. But, you know, we could even look at how people choose their characters, why they choose their characters. They could mirror who they are. They might accentuate who they are. All those things are therapeutic and how that plays out in the game is therapeutic. And you might not be conscious that you're doing that. I think for me, that's the difference between therapy and being therapeutic. Yeah, that's, I think, is is very, very succinct. That's how you say that word. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and makes a lot of sense. So as you're talking about that, it really, it's, it's spurred on kind of questions. And knowing that you've been doing it for a while now, and some groups have been going on, I think you said for a year at least. Mm -hmm. What successes have you seen? You know, and just, and I, I don't mean in terms of, you know, oh yeah, you know, anything measurable or anything like that. But is there just individual kids who have gone through it that you can just point to and say, wow, yep, that really made a difference? Or, you know, what stands out to you just looking back on your program and how it's grown and in ways it's helped people? There's moments of growth overall, and you can always kind of see it. Like 
something that happened within the last few months is one of our facilitators came up and they're like, we had like a breakthrough tonight or this kid, you know, was able to identify this. Those are the moments that you're looking for where, again, you could be doing things that are therapeutic and you're going, okay, this is sinking in on some level and we can kind Mm -hmm. of, you know, say, here's what the goal is, but it's not always overt. But when you see it putting into coming into practice or, you know, again, like if we go back to when you see people take what you have brought about in the game and now they're doing it without prompting, they're talking about collaboration without prompting. That's when you feel like you've seen some success. The other thing Mm -hmm. that I think for me that I've noticed is not all of our groups, like again, as tabletop role-playing games have become more popular, there's all sorts of kids that are coming in, but certainly there are kids that are in some of the groups because they have trouble relating with their peers. And when you see them having fun or hanging out with those kids outside of the group on their own, not because we've facilitated anything (laughs) or inviting them to celebrate their birthday. That is a huge win because they have also helped to kind of find their people in a way. Mm -hmm. That's huge because finding community as a therapist is a crucial part of, I think, human development. When you think about the isolation that happens when people don't feel like they're understood, they don't feel connected to anyone, even if you met those people in a therapeutic role-playing game, Mm -hmm. that's a positive. And we've heard that from kids that, you know, these are the kids that might have been alone on their birthday, but now they have people to invite to their birthday. And that's great. You you used a, an interesting word uh, to me, and again, this is like a mm-hmm. coming from a, a perennial online content creator <laughs> mindset. So I apologize for <laughs> for having an alien brain. <laughs> but but you you said finding community um, as as kind of a, a key part of this, mm-hmm. and community can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. Can mean different things to dif- to different communities. Um, so just for you. And in terms of in terms of kind of the therapeutic setting and mindset, what does finding community mean, especially obviously as it kind of pertains to to playing games and to connecting with people uh, that way? I think when you think about it, community starts with connections mm-hmm. and forming a network. The more people that we have in our network, the more connections we have, the less isolated we are. So when you think about things like mental health and finding a community, One of the things that research says is the more people that you're interacting with, the healthier that you are. Even if we look at Alzheimer's research, you know, one of the things that they're saying now is it used to be, oh, you know, make sure you're doing like logic puzzles or finding different ways to get home to exercise your brain. But actually, one of the biggest things in predicting or kind of staving off Alzheimer's, not that it's the only thing because I'm not a medical doctor and I can't say that, <laughs> is that having a community, having connections, having people to talk to makes a huge difference because you're not alone. You yeah. are getting support, you're getting empathy, you're feeling cared for. When you have a bigger community, you know, we all have bad days and you might have a difficult day with a friend or a family member, but when you have a community, there's often someone else who's there. So having that support network for me is like having a net underneath you that's there for you in case you're falling. And when I think about that from a therapeutic perspective, the more connections you have, the more people that you're connected to. Now, granted, that doesn't mean everybody has to have like hundreds of friends. You can have a few really good ones. But finding your people that you can feel like you can be yourself around is huge. Yeah, absolutely. So right now we, you know, we've talked a lot about kind of the impact that it's had on the people who mm-hmm. participated, obviously, because that's, that's the whole point <laughs> is, is doing that. But, but for you, you know, having, having kind of gone on your own journey, mm-hmm. going from, Hey, my, my eight-year-old is screaming about a fireball or something that went off in her room and is very upset at her friends. And maybe it's Steve, I'm not sure all the way to now where you're, we're running games regularly and you're thinking about games and you're consuming different, you know, different modules and, and you're kind of trying to process it and, and fitting together puzzle pieces. How has this journey or has this journey uh, affected you and changed you? To be honest, I'm not entirely sure because I've never reflected back on that one. But I think, you know, part of it is as a therapist, before I got into this, I always said there's a thousand paths to change and there's not one path that is the one path. 
or to go geeky, you know, there's no Mandalorian, this is the way, you know? Mm -hmm. But I think exploring different modes of creating therapeutic interventions, for me, this has really kind of helped me kind of tap into that creative space. Yeah. That is more than just, hey, here's my couch. Why don't you come sit on it? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so I think for me as well, like I've started to bring in a lot more things into my normal therapy practice for me as well. We do movement stuff now. Um, We might bring in artwork. And so even though it's not tabletop role playing game specific, I think that expansion in that concept of there's more than just one way in and it's Mm -hmm. not always talking has been a huge impact in terms of looking at how does change occur. Yeah, I love that. I'm also kind of curious a little bit about what you have learned, practically speaking, uh, in terms of actually, you know, running the game and sitting down, not just, of course, therapeutically, but just keeping a table of of 8 to 18-year-olds occupied for an hour and a half to three hours or however long you're playing it. And and so just in terms of your experience of sitting down and playing or, of, of course, hearing from other people who are doing it, what have you learned about playing with kids and and interacting with kids and keeping them entertained and engaged and, uh, you know, kind of scaling challenges and ideas and conflicts uh, accordingly? I think for me, I don't think I realized just how much of a type A personality I was until I started <laughs> uh-huh. doing this because it was like, we must get through these yeah. particular points. And I think for me, learning pacing has been huge. Mm. I jumped in, started learning all the rules, but there's the act of doing something and there's the art of doing something. And I think that the art of how to set up a game and manage it has been a challenge, but that's been something that's been really kind of cool to learn and also take that out there because there is an art to it. And having not done tabletop role-playing games before, you get handed a manual. There's a lot of rules. There's a lot of things to learn. That's been like the biggest piece is what is the art of it? How is it like recognizing where things are going when people are getting tired? When do people need you to kind of, you know, pick up the energy? So all that feedback that you're taking in, you know, for me has been huge because there's a lot more observation and, and I give props to every single game master, dungeon master that's out there, because there's a lot of work that goes into, you know, having a successful game where people feel engaged and you're not getting stuck in the same place for 45 yeah. minutes. So I think that that has been different. And also with that, having fun, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and making it fun, because I think in the beginning, when I first started out, it was like rules, rules, rules. And then it was yeah. like, okay. And, and how do we make this more fun? I, I don't want to be the person cracking the whip over here. Figuring out how to watch for cues in the players to kind of keep the game fresh and exciting, knowing when, observing-wise, when to step in, mm-hmm. when to let things go. They're all very subtle things, but it, it it's a huge learning curve to learn that art piece. Yeah, Absolutely. I'm also curious, you've spoken about being a lifelong enjoyer of stories, right? And of Mm sci-fi and fantasy, and obviously you're telling a lot of stories and you're having to consume a lot of stories for, you know, to to feed the the story machine of of TTRPGs. So what kind of stories do you either find yourself kind of consuming? um, And it can be, you know, just kind of general genre of like, oh yeah, I like sci-fi and fantasy or themes or specific kinds of heroes, but also what are the ones that you kind of find yourself telling, uh, you know, even even if you're as you're trying to kind of cater to individual needs and interests, what speaks to you? Gosh, that's a tough one, because I read pretty much anything. Um, I'm the person that's known to stay up until two and three in the morning, just reading books if I really (laughs) Mm -hmm. get into something. I like pretty much any sort of fantasy, but I really like stories where there's a work in progress not where there's a fully developed character, but where you see the character grow throughout challenges. And actually not until you brought this up did I realize that I think I set up a lot of like, you know, there's some people that go combat heavy in their games and there's some people that do different things. I set up a lot of challenges. Mm-hmm. So I think I'm reflecting <laughs> the stories that <laughs> I like yeah. to see yeah. in the games that I'm playing. I'm just, that's just hitting me right now, which is kind of funny. 
but I, I love a good puzzle. I love a good challenge. And those are the kind of stories that, for me, the ones that take a, a left turn where you think that they're going to go right. Yeah. I do like world building, but I found, and I don't know if this is something that happens as you get older, that I don't have the patience for like the real heavy <laughs> world building of like classic fantasy stuff. I like a good, you know, urban fantasy type of book. Not as much the space odysseys. <laughs> I don't know why I can't get into that. It's probably why I can't figure out how to make my computer run. Um, so. <laughs> it's all part of the same kind of spectrum yeah, of interest. Yeah, I, I, I get that. I understand. Did you, and, and not even kind of stories generally, but are there, you know, did actual play and that kind of stuff or podcasts or or YouTube videos, was that something that you either did or or now consume as kind of part of your 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 tabletop role-playing game diet? Or you're just like, I'm jumping in, I'm taking these rules, I'm taking these lessons, and I'll watch YouTube videos about accents and go from there. Uh, or, you know, and just kind of your your own, you know, island of, of tabletop role-playing games. I think that when it came to learning some of the skills of being a good game master, and I wouldn't even say that I'm a good one, like I am one. That I took a deep dive into YouTube, finding out different things. How do people do stuff? How do you change your voice? All that kind of stuff. I really enjoy listening to podcasts like yours or listening to podcasts where people are going through actual games, but I also find that I don't have the time to do that quite as much. Right now, where I'm at is I tend to kind of go in and from like, I'm feeling like I'm having a challenge in a certain area. I will go and look up YouTube videos, go look mm -hmm. up different blog things and see what people have to say and kind of pick and choose what's working for me. You know, I will say the hardest thing for me is everything looks interesting. It's like going to a candy <laughs> store. Yeah. And you yep. want to do it all. You want to watch it all. And it's just not humanly possible. No, <laughs> no, definitely so, not. So like I have like modules that still are in there, plastic wrap that I haven't oh. opened up yet. Oh, yeah. There's just not as much time to invest. But I also think that's super cool because this was something that I was not interested in. Now I'm going and buying all the things and wanting to watch <laughs> mm -hmm. all the things. As we get different types of people, we're working with different types of people. I, I've been doing a little bit more trying to learn about things that are outside the, that are still tabletop role-playing games, but outside more of the D&D realm to kind of figure out how we can do yeah. more things that engage different types of people. Sure. Absolutely. I think the last kind of main question that I had is, is where do you hope that this goes? You know, like, what are your goals? What are your dreams? What are your hopes? Um, just kind of ar around this program that you have put together and have now kind of got up and running with multiple groups and multiple facilitators. Uh, you know, what's kind of what's the, the direction? What are, what's coming next for you? You know, the main thing is to continue kind of where we're at right now, which is to pursue this as a module like to be able to find therapeutic benefits so mm -hmm. we would love to have more groups we would love like i said a little bit earlier to maybe find a way to incorporate more adults or to find certain groups where it might be for people with a certain specific issue or have certain backgrounds mm -hmm. where it becomes like a safe space so i think we're looking to kind of move into that a little bit more as well but the goal, I think, is to help people familiarize themselves with this a little bit more and see this as a mode that really could be therapeutically helpful as an alternative to, you know, the standard skill set of mm -hmm. here's a skill, here's what we're going to learn, let's put that into practice, because it's a different way of doing that. And I think that there's a lot of people that would respond to that. I know all over the country right now, it's kind of like spreading like wildfire, and there's a lot of people that are getting trained. For us, we just want to be part of that movement and kind of putting that out there as this is a really great way to find therapeutic value and also normalize, you know, a lot of stuff, which I think is great. I think there's a lot of opportunity and imagination that happens when you play tabletop role-playing games that you don't totally get these days if you're playing yeah. like a first-person shooter game or, you know, you're in some other type of digital setting or platform that, you know, a lot of kids are doing these days. And it's a great way 
to continue to bring in that imagination that I think is not there quite as much as it used to be. Well, Hillary, you've been very generous with your time, with your energy, with your expertise um, throughout this this chat. And I, I, of course, very much appreciate that. Unfortunately, uh, there is a, a price that must be paid for mm. this experience. And that price is to go through the reckless attack lightning round <laughs> gauntlet. Feared across, uh, you know, across the world as a, a truly torturous experience, wherein we ask the same questions to everyone who's on the show in the same order. Uh, there are no wrong answers, uh, the, other than I always say, I guess, like a lie. But that's not really even like wrong so much as like, I don't know, that's that's lame. But if that's what you want to do, cool, whatever. Uh, but it can be one word answers. It can be a whole a whole long thing. It could be, you know, don't really have a good answer for that one. And I will just I will look at you. I will stroke my beard and I will nod and I say, cool. Next question. <laughs> no, it is safe. Take as much time or as little time as you would like. Are you ready for the lightning round? I am ready. First question. Is your glass half full or half empty? Always half full. What excites you creatively, spiritually, and or emotionally? Anything that is art or creative based. What does not excite you creatively, spiritually, and or emotionally? Mud. (laughs) (laughs) What is your favorite sound? The wind blowing through the trees. What sound do you hate? Nails on a chalkboard or clicking teeth. I don't know. That one's a toss up. What is your favorite word? I like all words. (laughs) I have a favorite word. That is a very valid answer, but it might make the (laughs) next question a little harder. What is your least favorite word? (laughs) Work. (laughs) That one I can Mm. identify Mm. with. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. What tabletop role-playing game or D&D or whatever uh, monster or antagonist have you never run that you would like to in the game of Dungeons and Dragons or what have you, if applicable? Cerberus the Three-Headed Dog. Ooh, ooh, okay. (laughs) What is your favorite adventure of all time? And it can be a module or something, or it could be something you watched, or it could be 1999's classic The Mummy, whatever that means to you, your favorite adventure. Can I say life? Yes. There's no wrong answers. Life is an adventure. What is your favorite tabletop role-playing game character of all time? And it can be one that someone played, or it could be one that you watched, or one in a module that you read about, whatever it is. I'm very partial to necromancers. Mm. So I would say anytime I see one in a book, a movie, or any sort of gameplay, Mm -hmm. I always find those very interesting. (laughs) Final question. What gives you hope? People. I wouldn't be a therapist if I didn't think that. Well, Hillary, congratulations. (laughs) You've made it to the end, not only of the Reckless Attack Lightning Round Gauntlet, but of Reckless Attack itself. Thank you so much uh, for all of your time and, again, your energy and, and your just lovely expertise. But as a reward for having persevered throughout this conversation... Could you please remind everyone who you are, (laughs) where to find out more about all the stuff we've talked about, uh, ways that they might be able to connect if they're interested in in learning more, participating, what have you? Well, thank you for having me, first of all. This has been delightful. I am Hillary Davis. I am a marriage and family therapist and licensed clinical professional counselor with Touchstone Therapy Center. Um, We are out of Vernon Hills, but we also provide virtual services as well. And if anyone is interested in our Resourceful Realms games, they can find more information on our webpage at www.touchstonetherapycenter.com. And there you have it. Be sure to check out all the links in the show notes, et cetera, et cetera. Go check all that good stuff uh, out. Hillary, thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.